0: Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium for bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras. Just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcasts person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcast's app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're asking why so many modern men are struggling with two out of three deaths of despair, either from suicide or an overdose affecting men. Do we need to rethink masculinity? That's the argument of Richard Reeves, senior fellow in economic studies in the Brookings Institution in Washington DC, whose new book of Boys and Men, Why Modern Men Are Struggling, Why This Matters and What to Do About It, states that both sides of the political divide are getting men wrong and as a society we must address deep structural challenges that are affecting men. Our host for this episode is writer and critic Tamiwa Owelade. Here's Tamiwa with more.
1: Richard Reeves, in his new book, argues that the modern man and boy is struggling across three domains – in education, in employment, and as fathers. The first question for you, Richard, is why is the city of Kalamazoo in southwest Michigan
2: so interesting for policy wonks? <laughs> uh... I should say that Kalamazoo is also interesting to Glenn Miller fans. So those who know their Glenn Miller will know the famous song, I've Got a Girl in Kalamazoo. So if you're, if you've heard the name, my guess is unless you're a policy wonk, that's most likely that you will have heard of it. Um, but it's, it, it's interesting to policy wonks because it's a city that has had free college for all of its uh, graduating high school seniors. So if you graduate from the high school in that, in that city, then you can go to college pretty much anywhere in the state for free, full tuition paid. And it's also been very well evaluated. So it's a very generous free college scheme. Uh, but it's also been very well evaluated to see what effect it would have. What what effect would it have on college completion in particular? And what the, the evaluators found was it had a massive effect on female college completion. So uh, the the young women in Kalamazoo became about fifty percent more likely to get a four year college degree, which was a huge change uh, in terms public policy terms. That's a massive impact. But for men, the number was zero absolutely no impact on the likelihood of of boys and then young men from that uh, city going on to get a four-year college degree so the equivalent of a BA uh, three-year college degree in the UK and that's a pretty extraordinary fact and that led me to look at a whole bunch of other interventions that find similar results where you'll see pretty strong effects for girls or women and negative effects or zero effect for boys or young men and so in a way that's One of the things that led me to write this book, because we know that there are some issues, say, in education for for boys and men, but it's sort of rubbing salt in the wounds if then many of the interventions that are being tried to improve education overall are helping girls and women, but not helping boys and men. Hmm. So when does this gap in education start
1: between boys and girls and what are the possible causes for it?
2: Uh, it starts at the beginning, uh, basically. I mean, you mm. can't you can't really find a point in the education system. Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, you said in the it edu- turns when you think education starts. I suppose I sure. I, I don't sure. know of any particularly good evidence for differences in skills, say, among two year olds. Um, there are differences in behavior among two-year-olds. So, like, two-year-old boys are much more physically aggressive, for example, than two-year-old girls and have to be taught not to do that, which is kind of probably evidence that some of that's natural, but that may maybe that's a subject we'll get onto, to, Tom. Um, but essentially, from the beginning, at least from when we start measuring it, right? So as soon as we measure it when they start school and we measure it again, uh, you know, say at the start of secondary school and then again at the end of you know, GCSEs, A-levels, etc. And essentially, the gap runs in favour of girls every step of the way, it does get wider at certain points and narrow at other points. So it seems to be a little bit wider at the beginning, maybe narrows a little bit um, up into the early teen years and then it widens again quite dramatically during the teen years. And so it's pretty wide by the time you get to the end of secondary school.
1: Yeah. And, and what do you think? What are the possible causes for this gap?
2: So I think there's a number of uh, possible speculations here. I think, I think the main ones are that on average, and maybe we should just preface that almost everything I'm going to say is on average, so I don't have to say it every time because that get boring. And the distributions overlap. Can we just take? Can we take that as given? Sure. Right? And then maybe edit that in later. Um, but on average, boys develop uh, a little bit more slowly. They develop later than girls, mm. uh, and that's especially true in adolescence because mm. girls hit puberty earlier. And one of the things that does is triggers the development of parts of the brain. Uh, especially the prefrontal cortex which is that's the bit of your brain that says do your physics homework don't go to the party that's the bit of your brain that says you should study for these tests rather than just turn up and hope for the best it's the bit of your brain that says if i don't do well in these exams i won't go to college and then i'll struggle in life so it's future orientation and that bit of the brain just develops about a year or two earlier in girls and so if you have an education system that rewards those sorts of behaviors which we do then we should sort of be we should be surprised if girls weren't ahead. The surprise is that they weren't ahead all along and the reason they weren't ahead all along is because of sex- sexism. It actually under conditions where girls and women were actively discouraged from pursuing education especially higher education then the natural advantages they had in the education system couldn't be seen. So it's paradoxical that it took the women's movement to expose the ways in which the education system is structured in favor of girls and women, including in this timing timing way. The other two I'll just mention briefly is, one is that teaching is becoming a more female profession over time. And there's some evidence that having male teachers can be particularly beneficial for boys. And so that could be a part of it too. And then the last is that that boys, on average tend to do better with more vocational forms of learning than girls um, and and but most of our spending on education still goes on traditional education. So things like apprenticeships, vocational you know vocational training uh, doesn't get the same investments, and so that tends that tends to hurt boys a bit more. And is this education gap true across the world or
1: is it true in certain countries?
2: It's true uh, in all advanced economies. So like one data point would be in every OECD country. Mm. So to the extent that you're economically advanced enough to be in the OECD, then there are more young women than young men with a college degree. Mm. Uh, in every OECD country. I think the last across I think the last across the line might be Mexico, but um, someone can fact check that for me in real time. Um, but interestingly even outside the OECD so a number striking number of Middle Eastern countries and so on, you are seeing a gender gap in favor of women in some levels. Um, but it's obviously not true in many of the poorer parts of the world. And so the one of the difficulties with this conversation is that the ways in which women and girls are outpacing boys and men are quite local. So it's, it is typically in advanced economies that we're mostly talking about and recent. Uh, it's only happened in the last few decades. It's happened spectacularly quickly, but it's happened very recently. And so we wouldn't be having this conversation 40 years ago, and we wouldn't be having it still in probably half the countries in the world. Sure. What is in? Redshirting is a, it's a US term borrowed from athletics, which is to delay uh, entry to school for a year or delay entry to a secondary school for a year. So you basically uh, enter whatever the school year is a year older. And it used to be done mostly for athletic reasons. So in, in the US, it was very often done, and this is particularly true for male sports, um, but just being bigger and stronger uh, was going to be to your advantage. So actually, you know, being 19 is helpful when you're playing a contact sport than everything else equal you could you could anybody a bit more time to train but now there's now it's been used as a term for academic redshirting so that's that's the decision to delay entry into school not because you want your kid to be the best football player or whatever uh, or rugby player but because you want them to do better at math and better at English and do better in their exams and so that's really now the main driver of, of what this quotes redshirting phenomenon. Interesting. Um, In the book, you argue, of course, that the differences
1: between boys and girls, or men and women, which explains the differences in terms of education, is at least partly because of biology. So what would you say to somebody that says, by insisting on the importance of biology, you are merely endorsing something that's been used historically to oppress women?
2: Well, it depends. It depends what mood I was in. (laughs) So like, (laughs) so let's, let's say I'm in a conciliatory mood and I'm at a public event, Mm. you know, so I, I, am going to say, I totally understand where you're coming from. (laughs) Um, that, that is absolutely no, et cetera. The truth is, I'd say, are you crazy? Mm. Mm. Like, like, if I'm being candid about it, and it's you know, it's just you and me. It's just you and me, right? So I can I can only see you. I can <laughs> yeah, only yeah, see yeah, you yeah, on the yeah, screen. So yeah. let's assume it's just you and me. <laughs> yeah. I think like no nobody out there in the real world thinks that there aren't some biological differences that have some consequences for things like education. No one who's raised boys or been a boy mm. or met a boy thinks that there aren't some of these differences. The, the real debate is not not whether there are differences. It's like how big they are. Mm. Uh, in what domains and how much they matter. That's that's the, real, that's the real debate. And actually, problem with the whole debate about male and female brains is that it's kind of focused on adults, by which time most of the differences have actually washed out by the time you get to your mid-20s and going forward. What that disguises is the biggest difference is in the timing of brain development, which we just discussed, which does have significant implications for education, right? So even if you don't think there's much difference in male and female brains among 28-year-olds, which there isn't much difference Mm. um, and not very consequential, uh, that doesn't mean it's true for 14- and 15-year-olds. And there, there's no disagreement among neuroscientists at all. The question is how far it overlaps. So I'd say, and the, the last thing I'll say on this is the thing I find quite frustrating about this debate is acknowledging that nature has a role doesn't make culture less important. Mm. It makes it more important because culture is what determines how and whether and when we express some of these natural differences. So to acknowledge nature is not to deny culture. It is to elevate culture. <laughs> um, so in that sense, it's, it's, not, it's a completely false binary. Mm. Yeah. Uh,
1: and do you think the factors that I explain why boys are struggling in school's relative to girls also explains why men are struggling
2: in employment
1: relative to women
2: or are they or is it
1: something different going on
2: it's mostly something different so to the extent that boys who struggle in education are going to find it harder in the labor market and especially now so so that's a factor but the main thing that's that's hit male employment and male wages, uh, has been external shocks to the economy. So, f- more free trade, globalization, and more automation, right? And that's nothing to do with the rise of women in the labor market, and nothing to do with brain development, and not directly anything to do with the education system, except to the extent that we now need to prepare men for this new world. But but actually, it's just what's happened is that traditionally male jobs have just been hit hard by industrialization and free trade. That's just a fact. And the question then is, how, quick, how quickly can men adapt to the new world? And so, I think that it's very important to realize that things can happen at the same time without necessarily being the cause of the other. So, for example, the rise of women in the labor market has happened at the same time that men have been hit in the labor market. but it's not but it's not because women have risen, that men have fallen. Other things have happened at the same time, and in particular deindustrialization. Um, and, and do you think the
1: struggles of men in the labor system, is one of the most important factors that explain um, populism.
2: I think that the the real difficulties that many men are having, right, and especially, I think it's important not to say this is not all men, right? This is not typically the men at the top who are actually, on well, most measures, doing pretty well, but working class men. Let's um, use that term broadly. The real problems that they are having, if unaddressed, or in some cases even unacknowledged create fertile ground for populist movements, Uh, to the extent that populism gets its fuel from grievance, um, gets its fuel from reaction, to the extent that it's reactionary, then I think the unaddressed male problems are really, they are just great fuel for the populist fire. Uh, And I think we've seen that. I think we've seen, like, particularly among young Britons, for example, quite a big gender gap on Brexit. And there's a huge gender gap over here in the U.S. from Donald Trump's victory. The rise of the right in East Germany is strongly related to what's happening to a lot of East German men. And so I think that the gender dimension to populism is a strong one and isn't, isn't talked about enough. We know about class, and of course that's probably even more important. But, but I think this, this gender element is huge. But I don't think it has to be. I think that what's happened is because we haven't addressed the problems square on, in the mainstream, that's created space for more reactionary populists to, to sort of pick up on that. Because there are, you know, if you have real problems that responsible people don't address, then irresponsible people are going to exploit them. That's a, that's a fact of human history, I think. Uh, and I think we're seeing that playing out in this space now. Yeah,
1: but why do you think the um, progressive left view this topic as a ser- zero-sum game? Um, so they would say that focusing on the unique struggles of, Boys and men potentially distracts us from
2: being feminist. Why, why? Why do they see it in such terms? I think that, uh, again, in a generous mood, I would say that it's because it's happened so fast. Mm. I mean, it's happened so unbelievably quickly that un- updating your priors <laughs> that quickly—it's just really hard. I mean, the cause of gender equality has basically been synonymous with the cause of women and girls for. I don't know, let's say 10,000 years, and has only ceased to be so for, let's say, 40, 30, 40 years. So we're talking about the blink of an eye And there are many remaining challenges for women and girls, and so I just think it's really hard (laughs) to catch up with such a dramatic uh, social change. And when you you have a situation where we've already talked about the education gaps, but you know, forty percent of British households now have a female breadwinner, and that's just that's just I I don't know what the number was forty years ago, but but it's probably probably quadrupled. It's certainly just like it's just a different it's a different world, even to the world I grew up in. You know, I'm only in my early 50s, so this is just an extraordinarily rapid change. And I think there's a sense that like, there's only so much political capital to go around, there's only so much money to go around, right? If we spend this on boys, then it means we're going to spend less of it on girls and women. But what I would say is that in the long run, when boys and men are struggling, that tends to end up not helping women either. Sure, of course, of course, yeah. So
1: we've spoken about what the progressive left get wrong about the unique struggles faced by boys and men. What would you say the conservative right or do they get wrong on this issue?
2: Well, it's a couple of things. I mean, one is we talked a bit about biology, uh, and we've just had a discussion where, like, there are some biological differences, like, which is outside of, like, some circles were like, well, duh. Um, but the right will sometimes then over overemphasize those. And so there's some mm. a tendency, I think, to explain gender inequalities too quickly by by resort to a biological explanation. That's, of course, an old story. Uh, And so there's a lot of nuance there. But I'd say the biggest thing is probably what David Willits once described as a tendency among conservatives towards bringbackery which is a great phrase, bring, bring backery. I don't think I managed to get that into the book. That was from his book about you know generational inequality from quite a few years back now. And what he means by that is like conservatives are like, we need to bring back X. We need to bring back the traditional family, bring back traditional manufacturing jobs, bring back the, whatever it is, right? bring back X. And I think that when it comes to this issue, too often what conservatives will do is to suggest that we can bring back the traditional family. And we can't. That's in the rearview mirror now. The women's movement has successfully created a world in which women have much more economic independence, which is a glorious, wonderful thing. Arguably, the biggest human—you know—the biggest liberation in human history, in, on some measures. But that means you can't—you can't put Humpty back together again. You can't—you can't rebuild family on the basis of women's economic dependency on men. That world has gone. And so the trouble is that if you just talk about traditional families, traditional jobs, manufacturing, etc., what you're really doing is you're just holding out a false hope. And that doesn't help men adapt. What we actually need to do is help men adapt to the world as it is, rather than the world as it was. And conservatives almost always fail to do that. Um, what does um,
1: H-E-A-L mean? H-E-A-L. What, what, is, what does that mean?
2: Yes, it's an acronym. You know, you need a good acronym. <laughs> As everyone knows, uh, but it's uh, it's uh, you can't get anywhere, especially especially in policy circles without an acronym. And this one is like the mirror image of STEM. So most people heard of STEM: uh, science, technology, engineering, uh, and math. Interesting. What most people don't know is that it wasn't originally STEM. When Judith Ramaley went to the National Institute of Health, it was actually SMET. S M mm. E T, and she said, "Oh, I don't like the sound of that. I'm going to change it." So she changed it to STEM, and honestly, the rest mm-hmm. is history. Um, uh, we had STEM caucuses. There's been a huge push to get women, women especially into STEM jobs, pretty you know, pretty successfully. Heal is the opposite of that. So it's health, education, administration, and literacy. Literacy skills, as opposed to math skills, as in as you get in um, in STEM, and those jobs—if we talk about jobs—account for a huge and growing part of the economy. Like we have growing needs for people in those sorts of jobs, obviously for teachers, but also for healthcare workers, social care workers, people whose jobs are more on the administrative side rather than perhaps the machine side, more a bit more relational, etc., and requiring all kinds of literacy skills. Like how many. You can go back in time and find jobs where you didn't really have even to talk to somebody very much during the course of the day. And those were very often male jobs, but that's much less true now. And so those skills, those so-called soft skills, are becoming more important in the labor market. And that's where the jobs are coming from, too.
1: Yeah. So how precisely can we get boys into those
2: jobs, boys and young men? Yeah, boys, I'm glad you added that. And um, so it's a bit of a vicious circle because as those professions either remain or in some cases be- become more gender segregated, become more female in orientation, it's harder to persuade people. Like my, my own son actually is, works in early years childcare, but, but that's like, it's very hard to find male childcare workers. I'm looking at the numbers for the, for the UK recently, and there were almost no male childcare workers in the UK. In fact, they couldn't find a single one in the whole of Northern Ireland. Wow. Not one. Huh. um it's like literally literally none and very few anywhere else and so and so it's very hard then to persuade men to go into it so you have to reduce the stigma but the only way to do that is as obviously you need good role models we need male nurses and social workers and teachers and psychologists going into schools we need outreach programs just as we've done for women into stem yeah, we've we've worked really hard to persuade girls that stem careers are for them we need exactly the same zeal to persuade boys and men that those professions, uh, the heel professions are for them. But I also Mm. think we probably need some more aggressive action, like some scholarships specifically aimed at men to go into those professions, just as we've done for women into STEM.
1: Um, In terms of, because many young men and boys will see those professions as emasculating, so how can we get rid of that stigma?
2: Yeah, well, as i said i to some extent what i think we we need some blunt policy tools to try and increase male representation so there's a, a great line like which includes scholarships subsidies let's you know bribes <laughs> you know a lot of money spent on it and so on to try and just move them, get more men into them right so initially i think we're just going to have to like throw some money at that issue to get more men in then it'll then it, then the stigma will lessen just because there are more men men doing it but there's a great a great phrase in the women's movement is You have to see it to be it sure and so i just think how we present role models around that is is hugely important um and so just think about popular culture think about the ways in which we depict those roles actually you know advertising and tv is actually more gender stereotypical about professions even than the real world is and i think the last thing i'll say is that what we don't want to do is signal that these jobs are uh, that, you, that somehow you know, make them seem more masculine than they really are or more feminine than they really are. We just have to be pretty sure. straightforward about it. Like nursing is a good career, mm. um, you know, you know, reasonably you know, secure, et cetera. We don't have to sort of go overboard in sort of making it somehow seem macho to be mm. a nurse. We just need to make mm. it seem not, not as you said, not effeminate to be a nurse. Yeah. Um, and so how we talk about it is usually important.
0: Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things. And it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com/squared.
1: Why do we need more black men in particular to be teachers?
2: Well, we need more men, period. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that's important. Um, but we need more black men because there is very strong evidence that for black boys in particular, mm. having a black male teacher has some really positive effects. I would say it's probably true for Hispanic boys as well, in, in, the, uh, in the US at least. Um, and there are even fewer Hispanic male teachers, actually. Lots more Hispanic female teachers, but not many more Hispanic uh, male teachers. And so I do think a kind of, if we, if we think about gender and race, you know, you have, you have to see it to be it. And in particular, because black boys uh, are, and this is, this is a big difference in the US and the UK, actually, you know, black boys are the ones who are pretty much at the bottom of all of these distributions in terms of education. They are the ones who are struggling most in education and the gender gap is huge. So already for every, for every one college degree, a black man gets two black women get a college degree. And so that, you know, so we're already at two to one for black men and black women. So Uh, The gender gaps are much bigger there, and so we need a concerted focus on black boys and men in particular. In the UK, the story is more strongly one of class, and where you see much more kind of class, class really plays in much more strongly.
1: With that in mind, how would you respond to the claim made by many people that espouse what's known as intersectionality, um, which is that black women in particular face the most struggles in society? Because what you seem to be arguing is that it's actually black men and black boys other than black women and black girls. Uh, How would you respond to that?
2: Uh, well, first of all, I'd just get out some charts and some data, <laughs> and I've already alluded to some of them. So, well, you, 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 you're you're not looking at the same data as I am. I yeah. mean, yeah. You know, uh, black women in the US are more upwardly mobile out of the mm. bottom, out of the bottom, out of poverty than any other group. Certainly, than than black, and black men are the are the least. Mm. Black women are the bread, breadwinner in most households. I've already mentioned some of the education. Actually, among young Americans, there are slightly more young black women with a postgraduate degree than young white men with a postgraduate degree and so Mm. there's been this extraordinary now it's not to suggest that it's job done for black women but on most of the dimensions you, you care to look at you will find that black men black boys and men are doing significantly worse on a lot of the measures we might care about Than black girls and women that's to me that's that is intersectionality applied properly because what it does is it said you can't assume that the 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 position of one group over another is somehow fixed for all time right so if you if you don't assume white always above black male always above female straight always above gay etc because that will vary Right It will vary over time uh, as to what that means now, as a general proposition, we know that those things are kind of mostly true, but then scramble it up and then add class right, scramble it up, and what intersectionality does is it scrambles those categories and allows you to look with more precision at particular groups yeah
1: and and in terms of being fathers as well, can you envisage a future in which the stay-at home dad becomes as? normalized as the stay-at-home mom.
2: I'll be honest and say it's hard to envisage it right now, mm. but I think it's it's the the direction we should be traveling in. The only thing uh, and it's one well, of the reasons well, why, I think why, why, is,
1: why is it why is it that the direction we should be traveling in?
2: Um, because of the evidence that fathers actually matter as much mm. to their kids' welfare and wellbeing as mothers, and in some ways and in some slightly different and complementary ways, again on average. Um, and also because like, I've, I've, I tend to write about this and do, I make this mistake, I think in the book too, of just looking at it through the lens of kids, right? What matters to kids, right? So fathers, I just did it then fathers matter to kids, but also being a parent, being an engaged parent is massively important to the identity and purpose and meaning of people's lives. And so if you deny that to anybody, mothers, fathers, except then, then that's a huge loss. And so I now think it's actually important to think about this, from the point of view uh, of men. And so I just think as a signal also to the next generation. The only caveat I'll add to that is I'm reasonably convinced by the evidence that dads really seem to come into their own in adolescence. It's not that they don't matter up until that point, but they seem to have particular value to add uh, for teenagers. And so if anything, it might go slightly the other way for really young kids. So, like, just to say it much more bluntly than I would, kind of in the book, but it's like, all right, it's like one-year-olds might be with mum, but like twelve-year-olds should probably be with dad. Why? why uh, and is so, what that? I'd like to see is much more. Well, it seems to be that um, once you get to teenage year, your teenage years, you're sort of really pushing at the, you know, you're pushing at the envelope. You're trying to, you're taking more risks. You're going out in the world, etc. And it looks as if, again. Whereas when you're very young, it's more about nurturing, right? So when you're really young, you just need to, right? You need nurture and need to be kept. Like you don't need to, you only need to know like two people, like one, whatever. You're not out there making networks. You're not, you're not, you're not partying. But as you get into teenage years, especially more deeply into adolescence, you're basically learning how to grow into the world and take risks and it looks as if uh, fathers uh, have some something of a competitive advantage when it comes to helping their kids learn how to manage risk get out there in the world learn how to be more independent and so it you know so it looks as if dads might be a little bit better at helping again i'll simplify horribly but it's like if mums are really good at like keeping the kids safe in the nest dads are pretty good at helping them to successfully get out of the nest (laughs) again these are average years. And so what that means is that parental leave should be available to both, but it should be available throughout childhood. There's a bit of an early years determinism sometimes, like it's game over by five. We are learning much more that adolescence is just as important as the early years, but it's really neglected in public policy. And I think sometimes it's neglected by parents too. Mm. Um, The book is very
1: policy heavy, and a lot of your solutions (laughs) are very policy
2: based. I'm. I'm no. going to take that as a, from you. From you, I'm going to take that as a compliment. It, it is, is. It is okay? a
1: compliment, but there's there's a but <laughs> okay. coming as well. There is a <laughs> okay. but coming. Is, 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 but, but? And this is the but. Is is there something to be said about um, trying to cultivate ways of improving men, which are not necessarily based on public policy? Um, so, for example, we know that men tend to be Lonelier than women. Um, boys often tend to have fewer friends than girls. They tend to have um, worse social skills. Can we cultivate certain sorts of civic institutions in which we can socialize men, boys, I should say, or, or even men as well? Um, because many teenage boys and young men. And this might sound like a stereotype, but I don't think it is necessarily, spend a lot of their times playing video games excessively, watching lots of porn, basically isolated from society. And yeah, you can have a lot of policy sort of solutions, but is there something more granular and more something that we can do from a more societal and organic base um, to improve? Is, is, is there something religion can do, for example? Is there something social clubs can do? Um, I'm just thinking of anything that's more sort of organic and more bottom up rather than policy based.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a couple of things. One is I think some of those problems you've identified, probably more among men, are actually symptoms mm. of some of the problems that I'm trying to address through policy. Sure, right. Sure. So, so I think if you're like if you can create more engaged fatherhood. And you can encourage that through public policy. I'm not suggesting for a moment that like, oh, you know, policy, problem solved. You know, I used to work at IPPR, IPPR back in the day. And that's how, you know, you spend too much time with think tankers. That's how you end up thinking. It's just like the right solution and everything will be. So that's not true, of course, especially when they're more cultural. But policy can certainly help and it can signal. So if we had more engaged fathers, if we had more men in employment, more, you know, etc., then I think that some of those problems are symptoms of some of the economic, social, and educational challenges that that men and boys are facing. That said, and look, as a policy wonk, I wanted to spend time in areas that I thought there could be some tractable, some tractable problems, some problems for which there were policy solutions. Right? a lot of the books that are written about boys and men are like the Book of Lamentations, and I didn't, you know, I really wanted to have more solutions. But that said, I do think that culturally, actually caring for boys. And men, but especially for boys, does mean making sure that they're empowered, making sure that you know that they're, that they're being socially careful. The default assumption that they kind of, they're, just, they're just okay, and we should focus on the girls is not only wrong, but if anything, might be the opposite of the truth. Right, boys, if anything, seem to be a bit more sensitive to their environments, mm. and so I think encouraging like more, more, let's call it like socialisation, but more opportunities to make friends, draw on skills, develop your confidence, like. Out of school clubs, maybe like churches, et cetera. So, you know, I'm speaking about my, I'm, you know, here am I. I'm a, a liberal scholar at the Brookings Institution. One of the most important institutions in my life has been the scouting movement. Mm. I was a scout, came through scouts. I then became a scout leader. My boys went to scouts. And so, and, and that was, not at school. It was a very different set of skills. It was also about bonding and forming different kinds of friendships in different environments. And I think that kind of activity is hugely important for everybody. But let's let's go out on a limb and suggest that some of them, at least right now, might be even more important for our boys than they are for our girls. And so to the extent that we've got less of that, those activities, that might explain some of this retreat we see among men, it's not so much, and I'll say that it's not, I'm much less worried about the men who are acting out because they're small in number, although they get the headlines, and sometimes tragically so. I'm much more worried about the ones who are checking out. Mm. I think that's. The, I think a much bigger problem is passivity and retreat and dislocation and mm. checking out. And, and, and that's why I'm, I'm not so worried about video games and porn in and of themselves. I don't see much evidence for harm there. What I'm worried about is if they're displacing other activities. Sure, sure. What would you
1: say is the most provocative argument in your book,
2: if, if any? <laughs> I, I just think it's all plain common sense. How could anyone disagree? Um, it's, it's, well, it depends to whom, but mm. I would say it's probably um, the idea that the education system is structurally uh, favoring girls and women, that they're, mm. that they're just the design, uh, the way the education system works is not just gender neutral; it's actually structured. Um, there, that, that is structured. That's, to put it more negatively, it's structured against boys and men in ways we couldn't see some before. And I think that's a really, really provocative thought for some people yeah. to get past. Okay. Yeah. You know they're yeah. like, really? How can that be right? <laughs> but but I but I think it is. I think it's true.
1: But but when you say that, it's structurally like sort of geared against boys would you say that's deliberate
2: no okay no I think that's a really that's a a really important important uh, I should have said that Um, so thank you for asking me that Uh, no because after all the education system was basically designed by men Mm. And so it seems unlikely that a hundred years ago, a bunch of men sat around and designed a school system that, that, that much later, once we once we'd removed the uh, the artificial barriers to women and girls, would be bad for boys. No, uh, I think it's completely inadvertent. I think it's just, and as I said, I think it was just disguised before by the fact that you know, under conditions of sexism, then you couldn't actually see you couldn't see that intrinsic advantage that, that girls and women had. But it's interesting if you look at like, if you go back to the 70s, when, when there was a lot of arguments going on in favor of women and girls getting, you know, what, what can we do to help more work, women and girls do better in education? What nobody predicted was that, not just that girls and women would catch up, but they would blow right past and keep going until the gender inequality became as wide, but in the other direction. Nobody predicted that. And first of all, that means that psychologically, we're not ready for that world but it also i think reflects the fact that nobody took seriously the possibility that if we leveled the playing field what it would show is that the girls were much better players yeah 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 <laughs> uh, and i think that's what's happened they're just they're just at a natural advantage in the current education system because say not 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 deliberately not intentionally in any way at all sure sure because when we think of the word structural we tend to think it's
1: a sort of um, sort of Deliberate. a conspiracy, basically. Yeah.
2: Against. Yeah, like structural racism, like structural race, structural racism in the US is typically associated with things like obviously going all the way back to slavery, but also like redlining. So not allowing, you know, black families to buy homes in certain parts of the city. The GI Bill excluding below black folks. It was. So you're right that what comes with that is a sense of intent. And actually it's quite important to my argument. This is actually helpful to me because when I talk about structural disadvantages, in lots of areas of life, I'm not implying intent. Mm. You could say the same about the labor market. So to the extent that the structure of the labor market has changed in ways that are actually disfavoring men now, was that deliberate? Like did anybody who would were any of the people, including myself, who were in favor of free trade or more immigration, were they somehow thinking, yeah, this will really hurt the men? Mm. No. Um, But it it allows me to make a broader point, which is big social and economic changes, even when they're positive, can bring with them some side effects that are not positive, right? And, And so we have a responsibility, even when the overall change has been positive to deal with some of the side effects too. So in in the case of globalization, it means helping working class men, especially who've been dislocated. In the case of changes in the role of fathers, it means helping fathers to keep having a role in in the family, even though their role as main breadwinner might not be there anymore.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.